Well, hello and welcome to a special edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and I have a special guest on today. He is the gubernatorial candidate uh, for Minnesota, and he has been on our podcast a couple times, Dr. Scott Jensen. He has gained a lot of popularity over the last couple of years um, and kind of just happenstance. Uh, he believes in medical freedom. And as you know, over the last few years, our medical freedoms have been destroyed. So he is running a big uphill battle in a big state that has traditionally not voted for um, Republican candidates, and he is running on the Republican ticket. So I am super excited to have him on. And we are going to talk about medical freedom because if you follow this podcast enough, I'm a big believer in medical freedom and just freedom in general. We should be liberated to make the choices that we want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. And that's what we that's what we talk about in this podcast. So my goal is to educate and empower individuals to make their own individual healthcare choices. So um, without further ado, Dr. Jensen, welcome to our show. Thank you, Sean. It's good to be on. Appreciate it. Yeah. So tell us, um, you know, first time we interviewed you, you were uh, actually a senator, a state senator. And I was super excited to, to have you on. Thank you for such an honor and a privilege. Thank you for agreeing to that um, interview. And, you know, after that show, I, I think I remember asking you, because, uh, and I don't know what made me think of it, but I think I remember asking you, it's like, so uh, when you're running for governor and you were just kind of quiet, you didn't say anything, you didn't really respond at all, and you just kind of smiled, and now here you are. So um, tell us about your, your journey of, of running for governor. Well, it was the summer of 2019 that I made the decision to not run for re-election to the Senate. Uh, my wife was having some health challenges, and we knew that she was going to have to have four major surgeries in the next year and a half. So when Mary said she wanted me by her side, it was not a difficult decision at all. She's always been there for me. She's always been the wind beneath my wings. She's my better half. Uh, she's my everything. So I said, no, I was not going to run for re-election, and I thought I was done with politics. And then six months later, COVID hit. And through circumstances and, if you will, quirky events that nobody could have ever guessed, I ended up being sort of pushed to the front of the line. I raised my hand saying that misidentifying the cause of death is a serious issue and that using COVID-19 as the cause of death when it wasn't the cause of death, but instead was perhaps a contributing condition, if that, that this would be problematic in terms of the value of the federal disease registrars that help inform some of our, if you will, analysis of disease causes and all-cause mortality and things like that. When I raised my hand and said those things, I didn't realize that I was literally traveling a journey fraught with danger. Two months later, my Minnesota Board of Medical Practice license was being investigated for the first time in my career. Five years ago, I was named the Minnesota Family Doctor of the Year throughout Minnesota. I've had a wonderful career. I've had a wonderful life. And all of a sudden, it was literally being taken apart piece by piece. It wasn't long. And we had social media tearing into me. I was being vilified because I, I wouldn't toe the bottom line. I ended up, if you will, engaging with people on conversations that 
heretofore hadn't really been such prominent discussions. And one of them was health freedom. Now, I've been a big advocate for health freedom for most of my medical career. In 2000, I made the decision that I would have to leave the clinic I was at because I needed to have the freedom to treat my patients in accordance don't know it, but there was a guy named Benjamin Rush who walked alongside of George Washington in the Continental Army in the 1770s. And he was a doctor. And he said in the 1770s that as we wrote our constitution, America needed to have a health freedom amendment in there to ensure that we had our rights. What a prophet he turned out to be. 200 years later, we had Dwight Eisenhower saying goodbye to our country after he'd served our country as president for two terms. And in 1961, he said something to the effect that there might come a day where our public policy would be held captive to a scientific and technological elite. And I think we're living that right now. So the situation we find ourselves in is absolutely about health freedom. It absolutely is. And within health freedom, there has to be a vaccination bill of rights. There is no question that this is what we need to be about. And when we talk about health freedom, Sean, we have to realize that we're talking about informed consent. We're talking about data privacy. We're talking about so many things that if someone says, well, they don't think that health freedom is a big deal, then they just don't get it because it's a humongous deal. It's the Constitution. It's HIPAA. It's informed consent. All of these things wrapped into one. Yeah, for sure. I echo that 100%. And I have been following you on social media for, for two years now. And it was just kind of, you know, happenstance that I, I saw you on the Laura Ingram show. And um, my wife, who is much more uh, brave than I am, says, well, why don't you reach out to this guy? And I'm like, ah, this guy's not going to give us the time of day. And I, I, that's one thing I appreciate about you, Dr. Jensen, is you, you know, you are um, – you know, you're, you're, you're a doctor, you're a practicing family practice doctor, you're, you're not a politician. Um, and you have been, you, you've been teaching patients for years about medical freedom. So why wouldn't it naturally just, um, you know, couldn't you just go into a political position and, and be, and be empowered to actually help, help, you know, support that, that, um, that, that cause. So I, I think you're well positioned to do that, of course. So, um, tell us what, what your platform is when it comes to other health issues, not just medical freedom. Can you tell us that? Well, I was in the Senate for one term and I was uh, vice chair of health and human services. And then uh, it was quite an honor, but I was asked by the Senate majority leader in my first year, if I would chair a Senate select committee on healthcare access and affordability. And so I did that and we worked for a couple of years. And in that we carved out a lot of, issues that I, I would say are near and dear to my heart and would represent my healthcare platform. One is we want to make certain, if at all possible, that somehow we get some level of core coverage for everybody so that nobody would sit at home waiting for their appendix to rupture because they didn't have insurance and they were fearful of a healthcare bill. Honestly, 
we're going to have more and more young people aging off of their parents' insurance at the age of 26. And those young people have a lot of bills. They've got potentially uh, education bills. They might have car bills. They might have apartment bills. They might have, you know, they might have a children and family. And when it comes to looking at which bills are going to be given the priority, it might well be that getting health insurance might not be at the top of the list. Because these young folks think, yeah, they're pretty healthy and they've got all these other financial obligations. But what happens is occasionally those people get gallbladder attacks or they get appendicitis and they end up getting a bill that's $25,000, $50,000. And it's like a what a house mortgage used to be like. So I think we need to work on that. We really need to do the best we can. I think uh, at some level, a, a core basic package of healthcare, uh, it needs to be part and parcel of being a citizen of the U.S. We're not there yet, but I think it should be something we should strive for. We should aspire to that. Beyond that, I think transparency is humongous. We have got to have more transparency. Patients should not be getting surprise bills. You should not have someone go to the emergency room in a hospital that is in a person's insurance network. And then three weeks later, the patient finds out that the ER doc wasn't in the network. The hospital might have been. The emergency room might have been. But the emergency room doctor providing the cares wasn't. So all of a sudden, they get an out-of-network bill that is mammoth. Patients get very frustrated about this. So we need to make certain there shouldn't be surprise bills. We need to have transparency, particularly in the world of pharmacy. Big pharma knows what they're doing. They know how to make money. They know how to buy other companies. They know how to push and bully people and doctors and pharmacies. And they even do it to insurance companies. And that brings me to another company. Big insurance companies know what they're doing. They know how to adjust the contracts. Basically, when you think about it, Sean, the patient is fighting back against monstrous corporate structures that have literally entire floors devoted to lawyers. And it's the everyday man and woman that pays the price. So we've got to have more transparency. We've got to realize that Big Pharma, while it does a lot to help our health be better, it also, in a way, is a machine that we have to push back against. We need to understand that big insurance can be the same. We need to understand that big technology, if so motivated, will push against the patient in a direction for big government, for big pharma, if it meets their interests. I think we've seen that even over the last two years. These are things we need to do. We need to be fired up about reducing low-value services being ordered by physicians and hospitals and algorithms that aren't really going to benefit a patient, but are being ordered because it's our protocol. It's our policy. You do this and this, then you have to have that test. Never mind that that test isn't going to necessarily change the plan and that the patient's going to have to spend a couple thousand dollars. Low-value services are a huge crisis. We need to look at other issues as well. We need to look at contracts with patients. Uh, we, we need to look at uh, patient services, not in the way we've always looked at them, but what services do patients really want? Don't push services on patients that they're not interested in. In other words, Patients might come to the doctor and they may have very little interest in being pushed on a statin drug 
or another drug. And they came to the doctor because they have a hangnail. Well, the doctor shouldn't hijack the visit to lecture the patient about statin drugs. They should take care of the hangnail. And in that way, we need to make certain that the patient is being elevated to a position where they're put in a a place where they can be their own best champion. These are some of the things that I would work hard for. Wow, I love it. And let me just tell you, Dr. Jensen, you can't retire. (laughs) Unfortunately, in our system today, there's not a lot of doctors like you where they let patients make the choice. And I'm a big believer in, you know, a doctor is just an educator of the patient. The patient should be in charge of their own health. And yeah, and whether we're a pharmacist or a doctor, we should just help them try to, you know, take care of their health. And because they're the ones that are with, you know, they're with us, what, an hour a month, maybe? Um, and they take care of themselves 24 hours a day. So it's our job to educate them to make the most informed decision. So thank you for doing that for the last, how many years have you been a doctor? 40. 40 years. Good for you. Congratulations. That's awesome. So I'm so. something. You mentioned pharmacists. And I would just like to say this. Pharmacists are an underutilized resource in our healthcare system. These folks are smarter than whips. They really know the world of pharmacology. They know what drugs could be substituted. They know how to maximize what the dollar can get. We're not doing a good enough job of pushing pharmacists to the top of their license. They do a good job on vaccination. They do a good job on drug substituting. They do a good job on recognizing contraindications and potentially fatal drug-drug interactions. We need to bring pharmacists absolutely into the realm of being an equal teammate. Wow. I appreciate that. That's a, that's, that's good. That's good words. Thank you for the kind words. Being a pharmacist, I really, really appreciate that. So, um, so as, so tell me where you're at in the, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit of politics. So tell me, we talked a little bit about, about it before the show. So tell me where you're at in the run of things when it comes to being, um, governor uh, in, in Minnesota, there's a primary, correct? Well, really, in Minnesota, because we have a Democratic governor in Tim Walz, he will most likely be the uncontested candidate on the ticket in the November election for the Democrats. Now, on the Republican side of the equation, it's more complicated. There are seven of us striving to be the Republican name on the ticket on the ticket in November. So the first thing we do in the Republican side of things is we have an endorsement convention in Rochester in the middle of May. And that will decide who among the seven Republicans has the endorsement from the Republican Party. Then from there, there's a primary in August. And in an ideal situation, the endorsed candidate would be the uh, winner of the primary because nobody else would run against that person. And they would be the only person to file and to be on the primary ballot in August. What that does is it allows the endorsed candidate to have from May to November to focus on the campaign against Governor Walls instead of having to campaign against some of your fellow conservatives. But it doesn't always work out that way for one reason or another. And we'll know a lot more on May 14th after the convention in Rochester completes itself.
Did I lose you, Sean? Are you, can you hear me now? Now I can. Yes. I must okay. have lost you a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us, people like to choose winners, um, right? And we yes. like to follow winners. So tell us what your chances are to, to um, win the, the, the governor's um, office, the, the, the primary and the governor's office. Tell us, tell us what your chances are. We've been very blessed. We have had literally a movement created around our campaign. We set the record for off-year fundraising in Minnesota in a governor's race and for a non-incumbent. And we raised over one and a quarter million in our first nine months. That's remarkable. I think we've probably raised more money in that first nine months than any of the other candidates had raised all told in 2021. And then on February 1st, there was a statewide straw vote. And it was 19,000 people voted in it. And uh, we got over 38%. And the second place was at 13%. And you could add up the second, third, and fourth place people. And they could not get to our total. So that was a, a gratifying, wonderful night. We were so appreciative, so grateful. But it puts us in the front runner spot now. And we have almost uh, 90,000 people that have joined our email team. We have 2,000 people that have volunteered to do phone calls, door knocking, putting up signs. We have over 15,000 unique donors that have fueled our fundraising. We have half a million people that follow us every day on social media. We're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. And like I say, we have over half a million people following us every day. And just last week, we announced our lieutenant governor candidate, who is a splendid individual named Matt Burke, who has uh, a high degree of uh, quality character. He's uh, got a wonderful skill set. He's a determined individual. He played football for the Minnesota Vikings for a dozen years and then went wow. to Baltimore Ravens and got a Super Bowl ring. He was the uh, players union rep when he was a player. And then he was asked to work with Roger Goodell and the management side of things when he retired. He has a uh, presentation uh, leadership company. And so he's on board. He and his wife, Adriana, and their family are absolutely just, uh, just a gift uh, to Minnesota and to our team. So we're well positioned and we're excited about May 14th and the convention. So um, I now let, let's talk about Tim Waltz. Let's talk about what's wrong and what has he done. I think you probably have to admit, um, Dr. Jensen, one of the reasons you're a front runner is because you're a doctor and you've been very outspoken about what has went wrong on the medical side of things with some of the governors and especially the governor of Minnesota. So tell us what Tim Waltz is doing has done wrong um, from a medical standpoint with the COVID-19 um, pandemic. All right. The lockdowns clearly were a mistake. We saw that they didn't work in other states and that didn't stop Governor Wallace from not only doing it, but doing it twice. Initially, 15 days to flatten the curve and not overwhelm healthcare facilities turned into months of lockdown. He locked down schools. He locked down businesses. He locked in nursing home residents after he created a pipeline of active disease from the hospital to the nursing home. This is unconscionable. So many vulnerable, elderly, fragile people had to die absolutely alone, desperate 
and sobbing, and their families sobbed with them. Governor Walz took a one-size-fits-all approach, and that was wrong. We have a county in northwestern Minnesota called Kitson County, very, very low population density. It has nothing at all with Hennepin County, which is where Minneapolis resides. And yet, Governor Walz's policies treated the two as if they were identical twins. This was wrong. We also saw him, as I mentioned, have flawed policies in regards to how to deal with nursing homes. He bought a $7 million building to store bodies and cadavers in and never saw a body or cadaver because he said, we're going to have 74,000 deaths in such and such a time, and we didn't get to 5,000 in the first half a year or whatever. He went on to do modeling and wouldn't tell Minnesotans what the presumptions for the models were. He told us that we wouldn't have mandates, but then we had mandates. He created an epidemic of fear. He used emergency powers not to deal with an emergency, but to, if you will, further his political agenda. He threw transparency right out the window. He argued with the concept of natural immunity and instead said immunizations are the only way that a person can become resistant to a disease, which flies in the face of virology, microbiology, and medicine for the last hundred years. And lastly, he fell prey to groupthink, where he surrounded himself with people who said, yes, sir, because they were dependent on him for a job. He needed to surround himself with people who would say, Governor Walls, that's not a good move. He got caught up in groupthink. He made bad decisions. And frankly, in the end, it got away from him. He was slow to lead. He froze. Even in the riots in May and June of 2020, when we needed leadership, when the mayor of Minneapolis was requesting help from the National Guard. Governor Walls was nowhere to be found. We had journalists on TV saying, where's our governor? It took 72 hours to get the National Guard mobilized. And finally, we were able to stop the burning cities. But it wasn't just Minneapolis that burned, Sean. Because of our flawed policies at that level with the governor, Minneapolis burned, and that was the trigger for cities across the nation to burn. And that's on Tim Walls. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was it happened in Seattle. It happened in Portland, you know, out in my neck of the woods. So let's speak about government, governor emergency powers. Um, that's been a hot topic for the last few years in a lot of states, including my state, including my state of Washington, your state of Minnesota. So as governor, tell us what you would do different with these governor emergency powers. Let's be real, Sean. This should not be a big problem. As governor, I would go to the legislature and say, let's fix this problem. Let's make it so that never again does Minnesota function as if there's an emperor leading the charge. I would go to the legislature and say, I want to give you more power. I want to reduce my power. I want to make sure that if I call for an emergency power, that if I'm going past five days, it isn't that both the House and the Senate have to veto my powers. It's that the House and the Senate both must affirm my powers. In other words, if I don't get the House and the Senate with me, either body can say, nope, and then I don't get them. And if I go past the first increment of time and I want them to be extended, then it should go from a 50% vote to a 60% vote. And if I ask for a third increment of time, it should go to 75%. We should make it increasingly difficult for the governor to circumvent the legislative function. The legislature should say, yes, 
Thank you. That's what we need to do. So we should be able to fix that right away. What we saw in Minnesota and so many places was a blatant disregard for the balance of power between the executive branch, the judiciary branch, and the legislative branch. And we should all be angry about it. Yeah, I think a lot of people are. And you've obviously thought about this Emergency Powers Act, and you've thought about how you could fix it. I like the idea, the progressive, you know, the progressive vote that you need more and more. Uh, it literally it takes less. It takes more power away from the governor. I like that. So let's talk about mandates. I'm not sure about your state. Um, our state still um, has a mandate for uh, the COVID-19 vaccine for state employees and healthcare workers. I don't, I'm not sure what uh, Minnesota is. Can you fill us in about Minnesota's policy and how you can change that if you're elected governor? Well, our state is similar to yours. And I think that uh, as governor, I would just make it very clear. Uh, mandates would be illegal. I don't think mask mandates or vaccine mandates are appropriate. I think we need to trust people. America is not a nation of persons that are supposed to be commanded to do this and do that and do this and do that. We're land of the free. We left that kind of a situation where we felt we weren't having the opportunity to live the kind of life we wanted to live. Since when did government become so all-powerful and omniscient that it tells us what to do, where we can go, when we can go outside, when the bars have to close down? At 11 o'clock, evidently, the COVID-19 virus behaves very much like a mosquito because that's when we have our curfews. It, it just it must glom onto us just like the mosquitoes come out at night. This is ludicrous. We haven't had science being followed. We've had political pandering going on, and absolutely science has been sacrificed. People should be upset and angry. You, you know what? Nobody's interested in dying of a disease that could be avoided. So quit acting like we need to live in a nanny state and have big government tell us what would be good for us. That's nuts. I, I totally agree with you, 100%. It should be in the, the people's liberty. People should have the choices. People should have a choice. And as healthcare professionals, we should educate them. And they should, But they should still be allowed to make a choice. So um, what is the so what is the best way if people want to get a hold of you, Dr. Jensen? What's the best way to get a hold of you and 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 follow you? Thank you, Sean. DrScottJensen.com. D-R-S-C-O-T-T-J-E-N-S-E-N.com. And I'd sure appreciate it if uh, someone would do that. Contact us, reach out, catch us on our uh, website. That'd be great. So, Dr. Jensen, as as we wind this show up, you've got uh, basically two minutes to um, sum up the most. What's the most important healthcare issue affecting Minnesota right now? The most important healthcare issue affecting Minnesota right now is yep. arguably the COVID policies that took over Minnesotans' lives. But on another level, you could certainly say that the most important healthcare issue of Minnesota is that we don't have a health freedom amendment. We get to choose. If you're really going to be able to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, you have got to have a health freedom amendment. Otherwise, we're just whistling Dixie. We need to have informed consent. We need to have privacy of our data. And we need to make certain that never again does government think that they can manage and control our lives. 
I love it. I love it, Dr. Jensen. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. And I wish you the best on your campaign. And, um, you know, I just can't thank you enough for spreading the word and being a doctor that's been outspoken in this pandemic. And I know that you've been beat up tremendously, like a lot of doctors that have been outspoken. And I think in the end, Dr. Jensen, I think that people are going to look back and hopefully it's sooner than later, but it might be 10, 15, 20 years from now. And they're going to realize that you guys were the pioneers and that you guys were the ones spreading truth and just, uh, you know, speaking from a, a patient freedom standpoint. So thank you so much for, for what you've been doing. Thanks, Sean. Have a good day. All right. You too. Bye-bye. So... 